0: You know what that music reminds me of? Yellowstone. I just kept waiting for John Dutton or Rip or Casey or Beth, well not Beth, but I I just was waiting for somebody to come across. I don't know, maybe not. Um, I did anyway, I'm sorry. I thought about that earlier and then I heard it again and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay, a little bit of a weird introduction, right? It wasn't planned. All right, let let me get to what we're gonna talk about. Uh, when it comes to my life, and it comes to yours, um, our lives are full of stories. I mean, you got stories you love to tell, you got you got stories that you could just tell for hours, uh, and so do I. Uh, they're about the things that have happened to us, about the things that we've done, the places that we've gone, uh, the mistakes uh, that we've made, uh, the defining moments that have marked us, uh, pivotal circumstances that once upon a time we encountered, uh, relationships uh, that we have experienced over the course of our lives, uh, those moments and seasons of pain, uh, those moments and seasons of joy, um, successes and failures. We have stories about those, about the highs and the lows of life, about the disappointments and the delights, and and we've all got stories that are connected to those things or somewhere in between those things, and and those events in our life and those seasons of our life and those moments uh, of our lives, uh, they become the stories we tell. And stories are really, just from, just from a sheer psychological perspective, uh, stories are a powerful thing in the sense that they help us make sense of our lives. Uh, that's how we communicate. It's how we've always communicated, and it's actually how we think. It's how we process things. Uh, that's the thumbprint of God upon our hearts and lives because we think in terms of story. Uh, that's the reason we all love a good story. It's why we love movies. It's why we love art. It's why we love music because there's a story to it, a- and stories help us think. Uh, Stories help us look back over the events and the seasons and the moments of our life. And the stories that we begin to tell from those moments, seasons, and events help us to begin to discover the meaning and the purpose of those events, those moments and seasons of our lives. Without stories, it's quite possible that we wouldn't be able to isolate or identify or explore the meaning or the purpose behind anything that we've experienced in our lives, uh, these stories that we tell you know from from your life and my life they also begin the more, the more times we tell them, and, and the broader the story gets and the older we get the more that we understand that stories help us to see just how connected the events of our lives are, one to another, and how the circumstances of my life today is connected to circumstances from yesterday. And the only way that we can really know that and the only way that we can really realize that is through the power of stories. Uh, Stories help us to connect the dots between this was my choice and this was the consequence. This was what I decided to do and this was the outcome of it. And so automatically stories helped me to begin to draw, you know, a line between the dots, the cause and the effect. Uh, and then because of it, when we're telling these stories that we may not think about it in the moment, stories, they require us just not to think about things in terms of singularities, but we're able to think about things in terms of trajectories. And and we see how these things are connected and how these things form a pathway and how these things form a trajectory. And we can see how our lives have kind of gone according to this trajectory that's connected to choices and consequences and causes and effects and these moments and events and seasons of our lives. And, And when we're able to think that way, we're able to understand the past better and we're able to better forecast the future. Uh, This is what parents do all the time. This this is part of parenting. We'll we'll tell our children, depending on their age, perhaps a very edited version of our history, and and we'll take out some of the things, but we'll tell the story, and, and we tell them the story because we know that what our past looks like, their future will look like, or their future can look like if they decide to go along the same trajectory, if they make some of the same decisions, if they decide to have some of the same disciplines and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. But we can look at the past and understand the past in such a way that it helps us better forecast the future. And. Always being able to anticipate the future is a good thing, not a bad thing. So, stories help us do that. And then, beyond that, stories help us uh, help other people understand who we are and why we are who we are. I tell the story of my life to you and all these different stories, and then you walk away and you're like, Well, okay, I feel like I know the guy a little better now. I feel like I I know why he's a bit weird. I feel like I know why he's a bit strange. And then I listen to your stories and I'm like, Oh my gosh, it makes perfect sense. I, I never knew that. I wish I'd known that earlier because the the more we hear the stories from our lives, the more that we understand who we are and why we are who we are, because that's just the power of stories. And when you listen to my story and I listen to your story, we both begin to understand that we're not all that different from each other. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who was the editor of the Message Bible, and he's written many different books, and, and I love just about everything that he's he's ever put you know uh, a pen to. He says this when it comes to stories. He says life isn't an accumulation of abstractions such as love and truth, sin and salvation, atonement and holiness, and and that's the way you know a lot of times spiritual people or people who think spirituality is one particular thing. That's kind of where they think they're supposed to live life in those abstractions, love, truth, sin, salvation, atonement, holiness. He says, though, life is the realization of details that all connect organically, personally, specifically, names and fingerprints, street numbers and local weather, beef for supper and a flat tire in the rain. He says, God reveals himself to us, not in a metaphysical formation or a cosmic fireworks display, but in the kind of stories that we use to tell our children who they are and how to grow up as human beings and tell our friends who we are and what it's like to be human. He says, story is the most adequate way we have of accounting for our lives. Noticing the obscure details, the obscure details that turn out to be pivotal appreciating the subtle accents of color and form and scent that give texture to our actions and feelings, giving coherence to our meetings and relationships in work and family, finding our precise place, not only in the neighborhood, but also in history. Story is the primary means we have for learning what the world is and what it means to be human beings in it. Now, you have a story, I have a story, but. We are followers of Jesus, so we're we're people who also believe that the scriptures are God's word. And inside the scriptures, we find hundreds of stories, stories that belong to men and to women just like us. Uh, Some are memorable, some are forgettable, uh, some are sweet, uh, some are, mm, troubling, uh, offensive. Some are easily understood, uh, some are a bit more mysterious. Uh, some we read them and we're inspired and others we read them and, and it's a little bit sobering. Um, we read some of their stories and, and we like, we're like, you know, oh, that's pretty thought provoking or we read some and we're actually moved to tears because it's so heart stirring. And, and we open the scriptures and both, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's just this diverse collection of stories about men and women. And then within those stories, there's certain stories that we love more than others. And the reason that we love those stories more than others is because we connect to them more than others. And typically, at least for me, those are the stories that better help me understand God, better helps me understand myself, helps me better understand the people around me, the world I live in, and and ultimately, What does it actually mean to be human in this world? Those are the stories that we love. Those are the stories that we connect to. Those are the stories we revisit over and over and over again. And every time we read them, it's like they come alive because we get it, we get those stories because there's something in those stories that we love the most that's familiar to us. It's familiar, not because we've heard the story before and not even because we've heard the stories over and over again but because somewhere in that story, we find a reflection of our own story. We find a reflection of our own experiences, seasons of our lives, events that have happened to us, tragedies, successes, failures. We find a reflection of something we have encountered, something we have experienced, and we find that reflection in certain stories, and those are the stories that we're drawn to. And we discover in that moment that these very ancient stories that have been preserved in the scriptures have a very profound relevance to our lives today. Because if something written thousands of years ago about people who lived thousands of years ago in a different part of the world with a different culture, different sets of values, a different worldview, but if something about their life, their experiences, their encounters rivals my own, there must be something incredibly relevant about their story. And it must mean that I'm not that different than them. And they are not that different from us. And so the scriptures are just full of stories like that. And, and you know the ones you love and I know the ones that I love and the ones that you know are not our favorite. But when it comes to the stories of scripture, I think my opinion, you may not agree, but I hope by the end of the summer, you will agree. I don't think there's any more compelling of a story. I don't think that none are more relevant, instructive, inspiring, uh, consequential, emotional, gritty, um, intriguing, dramatic than that of the story of David. And, and that's the series that we're gonna be in all summer long. And today my, my job is just to introduce us to this series that we're gonna track all summer long, uh, the life of King David. Now, if you don't know that much about the life of King David, You're going to find out that he's a son, he's a brother, he's a shepherd, he's a soldier, he's a musician, he's a poet, he's a friend, he's a husband, he's a father, he's a cheater, he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's a worshiper, he's a king. I mean, there's lots going on in David's life. And David, you know, there's so much written about David. Matter of fact, there's more written about David than any other person in the scripture There's more chapters devoted to telling David's story than any other person in scripture. Uh, There's something important about David's life there, there's something familiar about David's life there, there's something that reflects our own life as we read about his life and and there's a lot of things that we know about David uh, there, there's probably a lot of things that God decided decided not to tell us about David and, and these are some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks because you know your're son, you're a daughter, you're a brother, your sister, uh, you're, you're a leader uh, maybe you know there's things in your life that overlap with, with who David was when, when he lived so long ago ago, but the part of David's life that you probably remember most, it's the thing that's said about him most. It's kind of like the billboard when it comes to David, that David, he was a man after God's own heart who served God's purpose in his generation. Uh, those were two of the greatest things that were perhaps said about David, that, that he was a man after God's own heart. Was David perfect? no. Uh, Did David have some dysfunction? Yes, was he a man after God's own heart? Yes, was he a man who served God's purpose in his generation? Yes, and and so David's story serves as one of the most epic in all of scripture, not just because of the plot or the characters or the conflict or the resolution uh, that exists within the storylines of David's life, but David's story like our own, it it emerges out of the moments of his life. Uh, The story of David's life is connected to moments and seasons of courage and fear, uh, moments of safety and danger, success and failure. And and it's almost like you know you got the bookends of life and and sometimes we live on the bookends of life and and lots of times we're living somewhere in between. You know, there's acceptance and there's rejection and and we know what that's like and then sometimes we're just somewhere in between that. There's pride and humiliation, there's happiness and sadness, there's laughing, there's crying, there's love and there's hate, there's sickness and health. and, And out of all of those things, That's where the story of your life and my life and David's life, that's where it emerges from or somewhere in between. David's life, I hope, will remind us in a way that's so encouraging and and so inspiring because when you read David's story, the thing that I think is maybe the most profound place to start is with the understanding that David's story reminds us that life is where God confronts us. God is not trying to get us separated from life in order to confront us or to meet us. God's not trying to draw us out of life in this world to some kind of segregated existence or some type of hyper spirituality or or to go to a monastery somewhere so that he can meet us there. He he doesn't want us to hide in temples made by hands and he doesn't want us to camp out at the church 24 seven. No, God meets us with life and in life and life is where we experience God. When we studied the life of David, we discovered that throughout his life, that's where God confronted him because God was always there in the forefront, in the background and saturated throughout. God was always there and it was in life, in all the messiness of life, in all the ups and downs and the unpredictability of life, that's where God met David, and it's where David experienced God. God met him in the context of life, and in the context of life, David experienced God. And the same is true for you and for me, for all of us. And so David, as we read his life and we see how God's confronting him over and over again in the details of his life and David's experiencing God in moments and seasons of his life, it helps to connect to us because we understand that the very same thing that was true of David is true of us. It's in your life where God meets you. It's in my life where God meets me. It's where God confronts me. It's where God deals with me. It's where God speaks to me. It's where God leads me. It's in life, in all of its pretty, in all of its ugliness, that's where God allows me to experience him. Now, David, David's complicated. You're complicated. David is multifaceted. You're multifaceted. I mean, he's a complicated onion. I mean, you got to peel back one layer after another layer after another layer. At times in David's life, we find him fighting. At times we find him praying. At times we find him weeping. At times we find him loving. At times we find him sinning. We find him angry. We find him grieving. (laughs) We find that David can be generous, but he can also be devious. He dances before the Lord and he also kills men. His story is exactly what we should expect if David is human like us. The inconsistencies that I know to be true of me, I find in David. The ups and downs that I've experienced in my life, I see that in the life of David. The story of David is strikingly human, and that's good news, because as we study this all summer long, there's something in it for all of us, and we're gonna see a reflection of ourselves in the story of David. David is so human. Like many of us, he is conditioned by the morals and the assumptions of a very brutal, ancient Iron iron Age. Now, we're 21st century people. We're, We're Westerners. And so, sometimes we read the story of David and the life of David, and there's some things that we read, and we're like, what do we do with this? I don't understand this. Well, that's to be, I guess, expected if we think about it, because... He was conditioned just like we are. We're all conditioned to a certain degree by the morals and the assumptions of the age that we live in. David was conditioned by the morals and the assumptions of an iron age that's nothing like our age. And this is also important to understand. God didn't give us the story of David as an example of what we're supposed to be. Because sometimes that's where we make the mistake. We read the story of David, we're like, I gotta be like David, I gotta be like David, gotta be like David. Well, (laughs) that could be dangerous at times. And he also didn't give us the story of David as a warning to heed or as an example to shun. He gave us the story of David for the same reason that he gave us all the stories, to show us how God meets us in the muck and mire of life and how in the muck and mire of life, that's where we get the opportunity to experience God. And we find that God would use David ultimately to change the course of future history for not only Israel, but for all the world, including you and me. God's got big plans for David. And so as we study his life, we understand that there were a lot of cultural mindsets going on in his day that's not gonna make sense in our day. And then also here's where some of our problems are. And again, this is just all introduction. Uh, you know, I should have told you it wasn't going to be a sermon, and then you would have not been looking for one. But so don't 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 be shocked at the end. It was like that wasn't a sermon. It wasn't. I, I should have told you beforehand. This is just kind of introduction to to what we're going to be talking about. But here's here's my beef with where we are in America right now. And and. I don't really wanna talk about it all that much, but here's, here's my beef. And I, I have lots of beefs right alongside of you. I just don't talk about them as much as you talk about them. And, 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 and so here's some of my problems with where we are in America. We are losing, if, if not in, in some segments, lost our ability to read and process history. And when we lose the ability to read and process history, that is a very dangerous thing because here's where we are in the 21st century West and here's where we are in America in the 21st century. We are in a really bad habit of dehumanizing every person in the past, whether we're talking about the founding fathers, whether we're talking about ancient Rome, whether we're talking about ancient Israel, whether we're talking about first century Jerusalem. We just have a real tendency to to dehumanize people of the past. We either unconditionally celebrate them or we unconditionally cancel them. And so now we're reading through history, and and some we're deciding to keep and to celebrate and to talk about, and and then there's some people of history, because we didn't agree with mindsets that they had, because they too were a product of the age that they lived in, they were conditioned by the morals and assumptions of the day that they grew up in, and because we don't like it, and because it offends our modern sensibilities, we just cancel them. We we don't want to look at them, we don't want to talk about them, we don't want to teach them in the classroom, and this is a really dangerous path we're walking down, because when we don't understand how to read history, we are gonna lose the ability to forecast what life can look like in the future. It's gonna, it's gonna hinder our ability to make sense of the present. So we either unconditionally celebrate people in the past or we unconditionally cancel people in the past. We can only see them one dimensionally, uh, to say it a different way. We either sanctify and ro- romanticize them or we nullify and demonize them. We either take the people that we think are heroic and we pretend as though they're perfect, like they never did anything wrong. Or we take someone from the past that even though they did some very noble things and some good things, because we didn't like certain things, we nullify and demonize them. And here's where we are, and I don't want us to read the scriptures this way. We forget more and more in the West that men and women are capable of both creation and destruction all at the same time. We forget that men and women are capable of both wisdom and folly all at the same time. We have the capacity to be courageous or fearful all at the same time. We can help or we can harm. And we've got the potential to do both all at the same time. You've got the ability to do right, you also have the ability to do wrong all at the same time. We have the ability to do things that are noble but we also have the capacity for malevolence all at the same time. And then to just bring it down to a Christian you know, way of saying it, we have the capacity for both faith and unbelief all at the same time. We are complicated. We are multifaceted. We are not unidimensional. We are multidimensional. We have capacities that seemingly can run in opposite directions and be in conflict with one another. But this is not a contradiction, even though some of those things are in conflict with each other. You know what you call it? You just call it being human. You call it being human. And so when we read stories of the past and people who did really great things also did some really terrible things, it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't write them off. We shouldn't ignore them or nullify or demonize them. We should just recognize the fact that they're human because that's all of our stories. You've done good and bad all this week. You've probably done good and bad just today. You have that capacity. I have that capacity. It's part of our human complexity. We can do what's commendable and fallible all at the same time. Why do, we get dis- why do we get surprised when people disappoint us? Well, I didn't think that's who they were. Who did you think they were? <laughs> I never thought they would let me down like that. Well, then you're just an idiot. <laughs> why? why? Why wouldn't you expect them to disappoint you? Why would you never expect that you're gonna not disappoint somebody else? We're human and we're complicated and there's lots of layers to us and we see this in the story of David. And beyond that, while I'm kind of on this pet peeve about how we read history here in America, it's causing us to not only know how to read and process history, it's also bringing us to the point that we're not able to experience one another as we truly are. We're not able to see each other as human beings anymore. We ignore and neglect the obvious. And I'm gonna give you something that's horrifying to think about, and it may cause you to scratch your head, and you may not agree with it at first, but I guarantee if you'll think about this, this is something you find to be true over and over and over again if you're paying attention and if you're intellectually honest enough to admit it. People are better than we presume and worse than we fear. People are better than we presume people you think are no good have nothing to offer they're better than you presume they are (laughs) but they're worse than you fear when you look at yourself in the mirror just go ahead just go ahead and be able to start owning it there's there's parts of you that's better than you presume there's parts of you that's worse than you fear it's true of you it's true of me it's true of us It reminded me of, I read something a while back. It says, what do you call people who lie, cuss a little bit, cheat, covet, lustful, struggle with greed, have been known to fudge on their taxes, a bit racist, sexist, been known to experience depression, have a problem with anger, a problem with porn, with loneliness, with being hateful, a problem with being too judgmental and self-righteous, people who can eat too much, drink too much, spend too much, self-medicate too much because of fear, anxiety, or worry, but yet they believe Jesus died for their sins, was buried and raised from the dead. What do you call those people? Christians. When you became a Christian, you didn't stop being human, did you? No. So we gotta understand what it means to be Christian because we're human. And we need to understand what it means to be a human Christian, as if there's any other kind, a human Christian living in the world that we live in. And David's story brings a lot to life and it helps us understand how to live in the complication of who we are and the sin that we struggle with in the world that we struggle against, how to be people of faith and how hopefully to be men and women who are after God's own heart that God will be able to say one day, they served my purposes in their generation. Now, David's story doesn't begin with David. David's story actually begins in the year 1010 BC. So you can think about how long ago this was. In 1010 BC, Uh, Israel becomes a kingdom because God had promised Abraham that one day his people would become a kingdom. And and God kept his promise because God can't lie. And and so Israel becomes a kingdom. And if you're a kingdom, what do you need? You need a king. And so you would think, well, this is where David comes in the story. No, David is not Israel's first king. Uh, He's gonna become Israel's second king. But David's story actually begins with Israel's first king, King Saul. And King Saul was the one who was chosen to be the people's king, uh, their very first king. And he was chosen, not because he'd been a king before, and not because he had a really impressive resume, but because he was basically tall, dark, and handsome. And and though, you know, I I guess we still vote that way, largely, you know, when we actually have a choice of tall, dark, and handsome. I don't know when the last time we've had that option, but, But he was chosen for his height, you know, they were like, we need a king, who could we pick? Who's that head over there? Oh, it's a good looking head at that. And and, and Saul's got charisma, he's got presence. And so they're like, let's make him king. And so Samuel would make Saul the first king over Israel. And he becomes a king over a people who had never had a king before. And what did he know about being a king? Now, it's easy to hate on Saul. I, I grew up hearing sermons about Saul and bad Saul and evil Saul. And, but it's so easy to hate on Saul. But really, we should think about it for just a moment. He had to invent a job that he had never had before. He had the card stacked against him from the very beginning when you really think about it. I mean, the odds were against him. He had never been a king before. And Israel had never been a kingdom before. What could possibly go wrong? Plenty could go wrong. Plenty would go wrong. And Saul's gonna make lots of mistakes, but it's a great story, long story, but it's not the story I'm telling today. Saul would make a couple of big mistakes that would ultimately cause God to take the away the kingdom from him. And that brings us to Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet was the one who anointed Saul to be king and, and Samuel had high hopes for Saul, Samuel, you know, uh, no doubt you know had a vision for what the future under Saul's leadership was going to look like, but now Saul is kind of a failure he, he He's dead in the water, he's as human as the rest of us. He, he tried to invent a job that he'd never had before and that he really didn't know anything about, trying to be a king over a people who'd never been a king before and and he just failed, he failed, he failed miserably, and God took the kingdom away from him and so Samuel's kind of upset about the whole thing. He's mourning, his heart's broke, he's disappointed. He's thinking about what was supposed to be or what could have been and disappointed and discouraged. In the middle of life, God meets Samuel. And in the middle of life, because this is life, people disappoint us, people fail, people don't live up to the high, people don't live up to what we thought they were gonna be. They don't fulfill their potential always. They don't always check all the boxes. And Saul hadn't and Samuel was wrestling with that disappointment because that's real. But it's gonna be in the realness of that moment that he's also gonna experience God. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? How long are you gonna sit around and just suck on your thumb? How long are you gonna mope and whine about this guy? Says I have rejected him as king over Israel. In other words, hey, it's time for you to move on. Samuel, I've moved on, and if I've moved on, you have no excuse but to move on. How long are you gonna sit here and lick your wounds because of what Saul did or didn't do? Are you gonna use Saul, what he did or didn't do, as an excuse to lay down and quit? And do nothing yourself? Is that what you're gonna do? And perhaps maybe you can draw a corollary. Maybe some of us have done exactly the same thing. Somebody did or somebody didn't. And you decided that you're gonna lay down and quit because somebody else didn't live up to what you thought. You forgot they were human. You forgot they were fallible. You forgot that they're just as jacked up as you are. And all of a sudden, You're sitting over here, disappointed, discouraged, and you're just gonna quit, you're just gonna lay down, you're not gonna do it anymore, you're not gonna bother with it. And you're giving their failure, their shortcoming power over you. And God says to Samuel, hey, I know you're hurt, I know you're disappointed, I understand. But come on, man. Even though Saul wasn't what you expected, you've gotten stuck. And you gotta take a big old pill called get over it. It's time to move on. He says, I want you to fill up your horn with oil and be on your way. Be on your way, man. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel, there's work to do. Samuel, you got work to do. Don't let being disappointed in somebody else be the thing that has power over you. Because if you give someone who disappointed you power over you, really, at the end of the day, what difference is there between you and them? Don't miss the next chapter of what's gonna happen, Samuel, because you just didn't like the way the last chapter ended. Don't do that. Why would you do that? I found a new king, and I need you to go anoint him. I, don't, I need you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to go to Jesse's house. And it's exactly what Samuel did. So he shows up at Bethlehem and when the prophet of God shows up, people just freak out. It's like, he must be here to pronounce judgment on us. God's gonna smote us. We've done something bad. We've done something horrible. And, and basically Samuel says, no, not at all. I think we should just throw a party. Kind of like, you know, just a, I don't know, just a big picnic. Let's all get together. Let's have some music. Let's have some food. And, and this, is, this is nothing bad. This is all good. And so he hangs out with people for a while. And then he goes to the house of Jesse. And he says, I, I need to meet your sons. And what happens next, I'm not going to tell it in all of its detail, but, but what happens next in Jesse's house, Jesse being the father of David, what happens next gives us a lot of insight, or I think so, a lot of insight into the dynamic that David had not only with his father, but he also had with his brothers that we see um, reflections of that later on in the story as well. Uh, I think, and I'm just reading into this maybe a little bit, uh, but hey, I think I'm right and um, that's good enough for me so I, I, I read into this story a little bit because I, I, it feels to me like Jesse and and his family may be you know one of those families that carry a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and, and the reason that they may have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder is because you know there's something in their past that, that's just not something they're very proud of and we've all got that in our family histories if our families have actually been honest enough to tell us about those things in our past that we need not to be proud of but but the thing about David's family they're kind of like they got muggle blood. Uh, They're they're muggles if you're Harry Potter people. Uh, But some of you grew up in the day where they told you that was witchcraft and you couldn't watch it, but you're missing out. It's a great set of movies. But anyway, they're kind of mixed blood. Uh, David and and his family line, they've they've got a prostitute way back there. You know, I've told you before, his granny was a hooker and and that's never something to be proud of. He had another great grandmother who was not even really Jewish. She was a Moabite, uh, a Ruth. And so, they're they're not even pure bloods and, and in a, in a culture in a in a a system that valued genealogy so much those those were kind of a dark spot you just didn't want to you, you you put rahab's name and, and ruth's name in six font print it's like i can't see that and it's like don't worry about it so you know, there's like this thing going on there I, I don't know maybe that's it maybe that's part of it but Samuel goes to Jesse and says, I need to meet your sons. And, and Jesse's got eight sons, but he only brings seven in. And, and the first one, that comes out, you know, he's just tall. He's got the look. I mean, it's like Samuel's thinking to himself, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. And, and God says, no, it's not the guy. And then the second one comes in and he's like, yes, okay, this, now we're cooking. And it's, no, this is not the guy. And the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. And then finally, you know, Samuel's just sitting there thinking, hmm, I'm pretty sure I heard God right. I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to be here. And then God kind of whispers into Samuel's heart because Samuel's kind of perplexed at this. It's like any of these guys could be a great candidate. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. Well, what do you mean, Lord? Well, the Lord does not look at things that people look at. That's something just to think about. The criteria that you decide whether you like somebody or not. When you look at somebody and you kind of size them up, you kind of draw all those conclusions, you make all those assumptions like we all do. Just just think for a moment. The things that we look at, the things that we calculate and tabulate and assess and measure, those are not the things that the Lord looks at. So our estimation of someone could be one thing while God's estimation of that person be an entirely different thing. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's obvious because I can't look in your heart. I don't know what your heart is. You don't know what my heart is. You don't know what one another's motives are. You can't hear each other's thoughts. None of us have that capacity. So how could, why would we ever think we truly know each other? That's another thought. What makes you think you know me? What makes me think I know you? I can't, I can't know your heart. Do you know how many things you feel and think that nobody but you alone knows about? Uh-huh. So, so it's hard for us to truly know each other. There's only one who truly knows us, that's our creator. Yes. He truly knows us and he looks at the heart. He looks at the things we can't see. He hears the thoughts that we can't hear. And so Samuel says, okay, uh, Jesse, are these all your sons? And of course, many of us already know the story. He's left David out in the fields tending the sheep. He doesn't even think enough about David to bring him in. Now, a lot of people have speculated about why that is, and it's really interesting speculation. Some have speculated that that David may not even be Jesse's biological son, that may be his mother had David with another man, or that some other complication in their marriage or relationship had brought about some type of animosity between the two. I don't know, we can't know, and it doesn't really matter. But he doesn't think enough of David to bring him in. And so David, like our family, and like your family, there's tension, there's anger, there's hurts, there's secrets, there's disappointments that people on the outside can kind of pick up on, but they don't really know what they are. That's kind of how it is with David. It's like, we know there's some things going on though. We're not told exactly what's going on. We, we know there's some family dynamic that's a little bit off. There's a little bit of animosity, a little bit of tension. Those people, they don't get along very well. We're not quite sure what the story is, but we know there's a story there. And that's, what, that's the way it is with David. So David comes in. And the moment that David comes in, God just prompts Samuel's heart and says, that's the one, that's the one. And Samuel anoints David and whispers in his ear, you are gonna be the next king of Israel. And he's a teenager. Now, imagine being a teenager and being told you're gonna to be king. <laughs> I just love to chase that thought. I, I do, I just, I, I, man, to be king for a day. What I would do. I mean, here's a teenager, you're gonna be king. Man, it's not like Samuel's gonna take him out of his father's house and march him to Jerusalem and install him as king later that night or early the next day. No, we're actually gonna discover that it's gonna be years, a lot of years before David will actually become king. And the years between when Samuel anointed David's head with oil and said, you're gonna be the next king until David was actually king, those are gonna be some of the most difficult, challenging, disappointing, painful years of David's life, but also some of the most formative and instructive and inspiring years of David's life. He's gonna spend years running from King Saul years running for his life. He's gonna write lots of songs that we find in the book of Psalms about this next period of his life. He's gonna write songs while he's in a cave, hiding from Saul, trying to guard his own life. He's gonna write song after song about songs and songs and songs and songs about what he's learning about God and what he's learning about life and what he's learning about himself. He's gonna write songs and he's gonna cry out asking God, where in the world are you? Why have you forsaken me? He's gonna get angry at God at times. One moment, he's gonna be saying, God, where are you? And in the very next breath, you're a very present help in the time of trouble. It's like the Psalms are, a, they're, they're a, the Psalms are a bit bipolar. They're, they're all over the place. They're, there's just ups and downs and in-betweens. And you know what? It's human. It's life. And where does God choose to meet us? Right in the midst of life. And where do we get to experience God? Right in the midst of life, in all of its drama. So he's gonna write lots of songs. And then in time, David's gonna become king. And he's gonna discover that prosperity is perhaps more difficult to handle than adversity. He's gonna achieve great success, but he's also gonna know great failure. His failures are gonna be painful. They're gonna be consequential. His family is gonna be ripped apart. There's gonna be dysfunction and rivalry. His own son is gonna betray him and try to take the throne. And David and Absalom are gonna go toe to toe and it's gonna be a tragic end to David's son. And it's gonna be one of the greatest hurts that David will ever know in his life. And he has no idea everything that lies ahead when Samuel says, you are the next king of Israel. But David will rule for decades and he will rule until his death. And it's gonna be one of the greatest stories that's ever told in scripture. He dies and he's gonna leave behind songs and thoughts and emotions and journal entries that all of us today, we have found comfort in at some time or the other. One of the greatest songs, and this is where I'll end it, one of the greatest songs that David wrote, he wrote towards the end of his life, looking back over his life. And I think this sets the stage for where we'll pick things up next week. This was David at the end of his life, looking back over all the years of his life, all the ups and downs, all the in-betweens. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. God's been my shepherd. And if God's been the shepherd, I've been the sheep. And you know the thing about sheep, they're dumb. And looking back over my life, (laughs) I've done some dumb things. Sheep, no sense of direction. David would say, man, how true that has been of me. I've lost my direction so many times. I mean, you take a dog, I mean, even a dumb dog. You take a dumb dog, take them five miles from home, that dumb dog will find his way back home. You take a sheep, a smart one. They can't find their way back from anything. David said, I would have been lost a long time ago if I didn't have a shepherd who was with me every step of the way. I've made so many foolish decisions. Let me tell you about sheep. They know they can't swim, but you know what they'll do? They'll jump in water anyway. Tell me you don't know that to be true about you two. Maybe not with water, but you know there's some things. It's like, I know, and they just jump in anyway. David said, the man, that's me. He goes on, he says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He said, when I look back over my life, he got me to the place that I needed to be in the season that I was in. Sometimes that was in a cave, sometimes that was on the run, sometimes it was in the wilderness, but he took me to the place that I needed to be in the season that I was in, so that I would understand that as my days are, his strength is sufficient for me. He leads me beside still waters because Sheep don't like running water, they're actually scared of it. David says, I've understood by looking back over my life that God, he not only cares about what I do, but he cares about how I feel. He he cares about how I feel. He takes me to quiet places where I don't have to be fearful or shaken. He says, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley, the darkest valley, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And then he gets to the final stanza of perhaps his most popular song. And David looks back over his life, this life that we're gonna study. And he concludes, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know why I was confident that that's what was going to happen? Because that's what had happened. Said another way, the New Living puts it this way, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. But for us good old King James people, amen, can I get a witness? But come on, we're, we're contemporary, let's do New King James. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." That's what David concluded when he looked back over all the stuff. David realized that when things are bad, God is still good. And even when I fail him, God's mercy never fails me. And when I look back and when you look back one day, we're gonna be able to see the same thing. We're gonna be able to say that by God's mercies, we have not been consumed because great is his faithfulness. Then, when we look back over our lives like, like David is, we'll say that we had grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. The one who knew me best loved me most. David's life is proof. David's life is proof of God's love and God's grace and God's goodness and God's mercy. And you know what? So is yours. And so is mine. David's story is a story of grace. It's a story of God's goodness. It's a story of God's mercy. It's a human story. It's our story. And there's a lot to learn in it. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we study the life of David over the next few weeks, I pray that you will God, capture our hearts so that one day you'll be able to say that we too were a man or a woman after your own heart, that we served your purpose as well in our generation, that you'll remind us that as we see how flawed and complicated David is, that we'll see a reflection of ourselves. how he's capable of such good, but he's also capable of such bad that we'll be reminded that's how we are. But when we see God's goodness and God's mercy, sticking by him no matter what, we'll be encouraged to know that your goodness and mercy, it's not only his story, but it's our story as well. So use it to build our faith in Jesus' name. And everybody said,